The following aviation podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast by thepilotreport.com about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode number 34, all about our first solos, tips to maximize your flight training, our picks of the week, and more coming up now on this edition of the Stuck Mike Avcast. Now, here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Rick Felty, Carl Valeri, and Len Costa. Hello and welcome back to this edition of the Stuck Mike Avcast, episode number 34. And joining me on the show today are my favorite group of aviation insomniacs. Huh? That doesn't even make any sense. Why not? You fall asleep when talking about aviation? Or flying, in my case. But I don't know. Anyway, I digress. Joining us today... uh, airline pilot. Nort, stop it. Keep digressing. This is one hour of digression. <laughs> Actually, not joining us tonight uh, or today on the show is Mr. Carl Valeri. Sends his regrets. His, yes, his, his regrets. That's regards and regrets. Both. <laughs> it's just getting silly from the start. <laughs> sends his regrets and uh, best wishes to us. But uh, we did find his stunt double, and we have a special guest co-host tonight joining uh, joining us on the show all the way from Wisconsin, Mr. Larry Overstreet. Thank you so much for uh, for stepping in, uh, like I said, for, for being Carl's stunt double. Thank you. Hey, glad to do it. Thanks for the invitation, guys. <laughs> so, uh, Larry, tell us from where in the world are you podcasting and uh, how are you tonight? I am podcasting from, uh, I guess, my intergalactic podcasting headquarters here in uh, Sussex, Wisconsin, uh, about 30 miles west of Milwaukee. And uh, doing great tonight. Looking forward to some good conversation. Excellent. Joining us next is our, what used to be our favorite sassy redhead, but apparently she is no longer a redhead, is Victoria Newville. Howdy. Shocked. It's got a tint of red, I said. Just a tint. Just a tint. (laughs) Just enough to remember that you used to be a ginger. You know, you did announce when it was partially blonde, so. When was it blonde, even? The past three months. I haven't seen you. Yeah. Sorry. I blame this on you. No, oh, okay. More photos. Send me more photos of your hair. I need a monthly update. That's creepy. <laughs> That's bad. <laughs> Moving on to uh, Mr. Rick Felty. Yes. Us from, where do you join us from? Somewhere outside of Boston. No, Natick, Massachusetts, which is somewhere outside of Boston. Here's a creepier idea. Let's start a <laughs> section of the website that updates everyone on Victoria's hair. <laughs> I think that's wonderful because it changes by the month. Well, see, so so I'm the creep, but I, you know, you fully admit that it changes. This is she fully endorses my creepy idea. Right. I love Rick. What can Thank I you. say? Well, I what, see. What this is uh, so. This is how it goes down. And I'm Len Costa, <laughs> joining you from uh, what was going to be podcasting from the barn. I dropped the N. I'm bod- broadcasting from the bar. And uh, my new podcasting headquarters down here in the southwest suburbs of Chicago. Cool. And uh, I'm sorry, was, was, did somebody just growl? No, I said cool. 
Oh, cool. Yeah. Hey, you know what's cool? <laughs> I could growl though. Whatever. After uh, after we're done podcasting here, I'm gonna go outside to the back patio and have a uh, little soak in the hot tub. So, I love nice. my new place. Let's do the pre-flight. Getting started today, uh, since we um, since we do have a stunt double tuning in for uh, for Carl's portion of the topic discussion today, I'm going to be his understudy, and uh, we'll go forward with the portion of the show where he generally talks about some upcoming events. I'll go ahead and cover those right now. Uh, the first one is called uh, Meet Us in Mojave, and this is a meetup. Uh, from Friday, October 19th uh, through Sunday, October the 21st over at the Mojave Air and Spaceport. And uh, it's an event you don't want to miss if you're, no, you know, no matter what, if you're a pilot or an aviation enthusiast, uh, what's going on over there is they, um, they're going to be having some uh, next generation space pioneers. Uh, there's some companies, X-Core Aerospace and Lynx Spacecraft Orbital Sciences. They're going to have sailplane rides and high-performance gliders uh, sponsored by or, or I think it's through Southern California Soaring Academy and some other static aircraft displays. There's a fly-in and all kinds of stuff going on there. So that looks like something that is actually pretty cool. I'm going to be on vacation, so I won't be able to make that, but that would be pretty cool. I've never even been to Mojave. Um, so October 19th, 20, and 21st, meet us in Mojave. The second announcement is a Young Eagles Day out in Crawford County Airport in Robinson, Illinois. That's from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. on, where'd the date go? I lost the date. That was October, you know what? I did lose the date. Can you believe this? I think it was October 20th. Okay. I'll have to get back at the end of the show. Look this up. Yeah, thanks, Victoria. I'll look. (laughs) That was Larry. (laughs) <laughs> Larry, you're very good at throwing your voice, especially in the female direction. Very good. Very good. <laughs> I um, I'll, I'll look that up and get back to you here in a minute. So um, while Victoria tells us about uh, her announcement, I'll look up the date real quick. But Victoria, tell us your announcement that you wanted to share today. Yeah, um, I'm happy to announce that I'm one of the directors of a newly formed non-for-profit global consortium. And that sounds really fancy. Um, What it is, is the Institute for Women of Aviation Worldwide. Um, It asks businesses and organizations to join with us to foster diversity and growth in the air and space industry. So we're looking for partners for that. Check us out at IWAW, sorry, IWOAW.org. And one of the first things we're doing is we just launched a contest for girls in the science area, and it's called You Are an Inventor. And it's welcoming young women ages 13 to 19 anywhere around the world. And the grand prize is winning a conversation with real astronauts. And what this contest is, is to develop um, an idea for a new spacesuit for women in space, because believe it or not, right now, the men and the women's um, suits for going into space are exactly the same. So most of us ladies are a little bit smaller than the guys, and what they do is just put padding in it. And that can be extremely uncomfortable, as you can probably imagine, that it's not the best way to do that. So that's a contest that's open to all the ladies, ages 13 to 19, worldwide. And we really invite you guys to all check that out. And Tell uh, if you have daughters or uh, nieces, 
who are interested in space and aviation, this is a really great opportunity. Excellent. And getting back to that coffee counter, why can't I talk today? Crawford County Airport flying. Is, uh, it was on October 20th, uh, so I just looked that up. October 20th for the Young Eagles Day, 9 a.m. to noon, hamburger and brats from noon to 3, car show, RC flyers, raffles, and a kid's airplane display. So our next part of the show, which we introduced actually in our last episode, episode number 33, as uh, sort of stemming from the merger with the Stuck by, the, the stuck Mike Avcast and the Pilot Report, And uh, we noticed that we don't have any listeners in Greenland. So uh, we decided to debut a new segment called What's Great About Greenland, where we share share a fun fact about our northern cousins until we can uh, determine that they're actually out there listening to us. So uh, take it away, Rick. What Tell us today what's great about Greenland. Well, they have have a couple things. One, they have very hard-to-pronounce names, which you'll understand in a moment when I tell you that the other thing they have that's really great is their uh, coastal waterways and their there is sort of a, an inside passage kind of route um, north to south along the coast that you can take um, sort of beautiful uh, scenic uh, travel by water to visit little towns, see uh, local customs and, you know, see wildlife, see uh, whales, whales, whale watching as part of this and all that. It's about a 1,300-kilometer trip, um, and it's between two towns. Um, I'm not going to even try. But um, <laughs> you can look this up. The boat's name is Sarfak Ituk. Excuse me. But, um, and uh, it, it is a, a pretty long sail. You know, it's a, it has berths and it looks like it's a very comfortable boat that you can take in both directions. It reminds me of Alaska, of that section of Alaska where that's right near Canada on the, you know, heading up north. It is mm-hmm. a beautiful trip as well. It looks, it looks the same. So, those of you uh, who live in Greenland must know about this, and those of you who want to visit there, that's something that's great about Greenland. We need a theme song. Dun, we dun, do. Dun, dun. Some, something interesting. Now, now you said that that's 1,300 kilometers just to get between two different towns. No, 11. There are 11 towns on that Oh, trip. 11 towns. I was like, yes. man, that's uh, quite a journey. <laughs> no, and you can take various portions of that. So it looks like an interesting uh, destination. Very to neat. try out. Now entering cruise flight. Cool. Excellent. Well, glad to have everybody here today. I know that uh, we're going to miss Carl, but we'll, um, you know, Larry's going to do his best. He may, you know what? If he, Larry, I tell you what, if you do a better job than Carl, you just might have a permanent spot here, but uh, don't tell Carl. Uh oh. Wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Just teasing. Uh, cool. Well, today's uh, today's topic sort of stemmed from you know we've we haven't really talked recently about the you know roots of flying, getting back to grassroots, and talking about you know we did an episode where we all shared our stories and how we got involved in aviation and what the what our passion was, what drove got us to this you know point uh, that that we wanted to actually get involved in aviation. And today what we wanted to talk about, since we're we're trying to actually in the last episode, we talked about how do you how can you keep flying versus having to quit aviation. And so we're trying to sort of spend more time on some more basics regarding flying and flight training and, and our own personal experiences. And what we're gonna do today is spend some time discussing amongst ourselves here, uh, you know, our first solo. Uh, what our flight training experience, what we thought we did right, what we would have done differently, things we liked, things that were frustrating, and most of all, uh, you know, hopefully some of these, um, some of this discussion will 
will lead us down the path to talk about how we could help grow uh, the current pilot population. So in talking about first solos, uh, let's go with Rick. Tell us about your, you know, your a little bit about your primary flight mm-hmm. training and leading, maybe leading up to your first solo. Right. And, um, you know, tell, you just share that story with us. Right. Well, you know, I, I, I think we're going to have a variety of different paths here. And I've talked a little bit about uh, mine was a little unusual in that I started primary training with a Cirrus. And uh, so from zero, that's what I was doing. And, um, and so that, that part makes it a little bit different than I think most people um, who tend to probably graduate to that or work their way up to that. And the, and so, so that's the framework of it. And eventually, and we can talk about the timing, but I, um, I was also traveling a lot for work and whatever, and it, it took probably longer. And that's one of the things I guess we can talk about, which is the idea of speed of training in terms of frequency. Uh, if, you, if you're doing it more regularly, more often, you're going to progress faster than if you spread it out. And that's pretty known, I think, if you guys can correct me if, if you very, disagree. Very, very, very true. <clears throat> and so, yeah, yes, so very. I <laughs> so I enjoyed it, and I, but I spread it out. And so it took a while. And, um, and we can talk specifically about the solo, but I... What was interesting is that I soloed and I did my cross countries, and then the Cirrus that that were this place I was working flying out of, which was a Cirrus training facility. Those the Cirrus that were there, they all went down. They all, they were sort of for different reasons. One of them actually was a, after a flight I was on, it got pulled and took a while to repair. And so I was suddenly having I had to switch planes. So for me, I I first soloed in a Cirrus, and then I and then I had to work my way back to soloing in a in a one seventy two. So, so I did have two moments where I was actually, you know, mm-hmm. my first time again, kind of, although it's, it's different because I had done quite a lot of flying uh, by that time, by the, by the Cessna. So that's interesting to me that you, I, I mean, you, we've talked about your, your primary flight training in the Cirrus and it still fascinates me that, I mean, it's, right. it's a technically advanced aircraft and it's, it's kind of high performance and high speed. And I don't know if I could have imagined myself learning in such well, an you know, aircraft. I think this gets to the point that we talk about a little bit that for me, you know, I, I like equipment. I like modern, you know, sort of current technology. I like, you know, nice, I, like I like nice cars, for instance. So to step out of a nice car that I'm used to driving into something that's uh, whatever it would be, some older model um, airplane, which is what you bump into a lot, especially in smaller uh, fields. That's, it's cool. It's all fine. I'm glad it exists. But for me, I was looking for something that was a little more, you know, now. Mm-hmm. And so I think I, and, and the airport fit where I live and, and that's where it was located. So it all, it all kind of worked and I didn't really know anything any different. Um, although I will say, I think, um, you know, I, and there were some things I, th- there were some things about that plane that, that probably made it harder to, to get to a solo point for me. And I might have done that quicker in a Cessna, but we can. Do talk you about happen that. to recall how many hours it took you to get to the solo point? It, in? It, well, I can I can look while we're talking, but I it was it was more than twenty. You know, it was like it might have been forty. It was a lot. Maybe it was thirty somewhere in there. I'll have to check. It it, mm-hmm. it took a while, and uh, um, so then the whole thing got stretched out to getting my license because I had to sort of start again with learning, you know, high wing slower speeds. There's just a bunch of yeah. stuff that's different. Yoke, you know, it, it was, it was cool, but it was, a, it was, it was still a glass panel plane. So that part wasn't that different in terms of sight, you know, in terms of the scan and all that. But, um, but it was a, it was start again. And then for a while I was juggling both planes and that was fun to try to stay current in both. Um, so, but anyway, so I don't know the hours. I'll check the hours on the solo. It was a ways in though. It wasn't nine or 10 or, you know, whatever. 
I see people doing. It's quick. I don't. I find that sort of fascinating because it's it parallels a bit of my own experience of taking a few extra hours to solo. Um, and uh, but my reasoning was I started so young. I was 15 when I started taking flight lessons, mm. and I had to fly from. Right. Uh, I started flying in November, and my birthday wasn't until the following July. So. You know, I had roughly nine months that I just had to continue flying to stay current and proficient before I did that first solo. And of course, I soloed on my 16th birthday. And then, you know, knowing the um, the requirements of a private pilot certificate, I couldn't get my private for another year. So I spent all that time again the next year continuing flying, flying, flying just to stay proficient. But uh, well, this the solo itself... Um, I did my solo in the old trusty Cessna 152. Nice. I can't, I can't, I don't know, right. you know, when I was 15 years old, I fit in it really well, but I can't imagine myself trying to squeeze into one. And I'm, I mean, I'm not like a tall, necessarily tall or, or large person, but uh, it's just, I don't know how I fit in it. Anybody been in one recently? I, I've looked. In, I've looked in them and gone. <laughs> how's that? You know, how's that possible? <laughs> that's about as far. You know, as and I'm a big guy, so that's the other thing. This the Cirrus for me. It, it it does. It is a little wider. You know, mm -hmm. the whole the cockpit feels a little roomier. So, the, but yeah, I look at those 150s and go, oh my gosh. Yeah, or 152s, uh, whatever. It was a fun airplane, uh, Larry. You've had some experience in one. I have. Yeah. In fact, um, my uh, my I, I I actually have three flights. That I think of as a first solo. I don't. I don't think anyone should be limited to just one of them. <laughs> um, I started flying. My first first solo uh, was 1979, and it was a Schweitzer 233 glider, and um, 14 years old. So you can do the math, and um, it, it just had a blast. You know, it was kind of cool at 14 to you know be doing something that not too many of my friends were doing. Um, Although probably a year or so later, uh, the kid down the street from me ended up being my instructor. So what can I say? Uh, <laughs> but that was at uh, Hinkley, Illinois, which is a little bit west of Aurora, kind of far southwest Chicago, Chicago land area. And um, so that was fun. Flew kind of into college uh, there and then ran out of time and money and everything for a while. And then after I got married, um, I started taking flying lessons uh, in a 152 at uh, Crystal Lake, Illinois, 3CK. Um, I got a grand total of about three hours and three flights in and found out my job was going to move me across the uh, halfway across the country, I guess, uh, down to Arkansas. So that put a little push pause a little bit there. Went down and found, uh, moved to Salem Springs, Arkansas, and uh, found the airport there, Sierra Lima Gulf, and uh, got a few more flights in and soloed with a grand total of 6.2 hours uh, of power time, uh, in addition to the glider time. Um, and so that was my first powered solo. In fact, my, my instructor, uh, Dan Greider, uh, he has a DC three that, uh, you might see every once in a while. Um, he was my instructor back then. And, uh, you know, he wrote first powered solo in my logbook. Um, and, <laughs> and then, uh, flew for several years, got my instrument rating, um, ended up having, we have six kids. So, Big family, moved across country again, went to Colorado, didn't fly in Colorado, uh, and then we moved to Wisconsin about 11 years ago now, and um, got settled in here now and started uh, flying Piper Cubs. Um, my 
kids and I are building a Sonics uh, aircraft, experimental aircraft in our basement as a tail dragger. And so I needed to get a tailwheel endorsement. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was, you know, there's a a great school, Cub Air um, Flight is the location that the Cubs to Oshkosh um, uh, started from this summer. And uh, so went up there, met Steve Krogh, and uh, started working with him. I hadn't been flying at all in about 15 years. And so, you know, it was back to basic stick and rudder skills and, and learning to fly uh, kind of all over again in a sense. Um, somebody mentioned what we did right and what we did wrong. And uh, I totally agree that the more you fly uh, while you're learning, especially, the more quickly you'll pick it up mm-hmm. um, because of work and travel uh that was required there. Um, I ended up spreading, uh, and this is almost embarrassing. I sold, I soloed a glider in, you know, about six hours. I soloed a, about, you know, 150, uh, I'll get back to that in about six hours. And, um, it took me 17 hours to get a tailwheel endorsement, but it was 17 hours spread out over about a year and a half mm-hmm. because I just did not have the time to go back and just knock the thing out, mm-hmm. you know? And so that was one of the big mistakes I made because I could have had another, you know, year and a half of, of flying, uh, you know, with friends and whatever, but I just wasn't making the time to get out to the airport. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. We should, uh, you know, we can talk about that a little bit later on about the, the consistency of scheduling and, and other things to help keep you, uh, you know, keep folks moving along in a, in a good pace. Um, so yeah, that's cool. You've, you had three, like essentially, like you said, three first solos. Um, that's neat. Victoria, tell us about, uh, your, flight training experience up to your first solo? Um, mine was kind of like Rick's. Um, took a lot longer than it probably should have um, due to flight instructors and uh, changing flight schools and things like that. But there is a point where I should have realized that enough is enough. It's time to solo. But unfortunately, when I started this journey, I had no one as a mentor you know, I didn't know about all these groups online talking about flying and learning to fly. It was basically just me who said, I want to learn to fly and I have my books and now I'm going to a flight school. So many, many hours later, I think it was close to the 40 number. I had still not soloed and um, my flight instructor was leaving and I was really upset because I was like, oh my goodness, I need to finish. And it turned out to be a blessing in disguise. He went off to the airlines and I got a new instructor And even though we had to get to know each other and he had to make sure he trusted me, our second lesson together, I finally soloed. And I think everyone remembers that feeling looking Mm -hmm. to the right and being like, oh, my God, no one is there. (laughs) And uh, it was amazing, though. I I was so proud. And um, I know all the um, end numbers at that flight school ended in Tango Alpha. And I don't remember which one it was, but I have a picture of me smiling in front of it. Mm -hmm. It was awesome. So when I did it, it was finally, you know, got rolling. So it really, you really need to question yourself as you go through and see, you know, am I where I should be right now? Because, you know, by that time, I should have probably been close to becoming a private pilot, but it was my first solo. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I think in two or three months, I was finally had my private. But I'll just jump in here and just confirm that it was 40 some hours for me, 44, something like that. Okay. For the first one. But what I noticed as I look at it, the Cessna came much quicker. I mean, it was in number of hours. It was still, because that was 44 hours over a full year. So spread out over a year. Um, and and in the Cirrus. And then it was um, mm-hmm. 
like half a year with not many flights in the Cessna. The Cessna actually was the fifth the fifth flight. So it actually, I, I think I did it quicker than I remember doing it. Mm-hmm. So, but there was still a lot. Can I just say one thing real quick, a little disclaimer? Um, you know, don't feel bad if it took you 40 hours or 90 hours, whether that, if it was whether a skill yeah, yeah, yeah. thing yeah. or just weather and um, instructors, because I did have one um, flight instructor when I was getting ready to get ready for my private check ride. He looked at my book and he's like, you have that many hours. <laughs> like, like, like it was a bad thing that I had that many hours and I wasn't a private pilot yet. So mm-hmm. don't feel discouraged because it's really not about the numbers. No, yeah, not certainly yeah, not at all. Not yeah. at all. And I, you know, I will say I did never feel like I was taking too long. I had fun. I was learning a lot. And I, you know, my problem is I, 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 I and this may be true of a certain portion of students. I never felt I was ready for any stage. <laughs> you know, like, really? <laughs> no, you're going to get out? And then, you know, Are later, you sure about this? really, I, I'm ready for the check ride. And they were trying to explain to me why they knew I was, even though I had one sense. And we can talk about check rides in another show. Mm-hmm. But same idea is like, oh, okay. I guess I guess I guess I'll, that's what's great. CFIs. I mean, I I just think that's the most amazing thing that they do because of all the challenges involved. And one of them is knowing when mm-hmm. it's right. You know, mm-hmm. when the day is right and the person's right. So. Well, we question. certainly have a recurring theme on that. You know, amongst the four of us, depending on the length of time flight training took or the length of time or frequency. Um, so that's that's something um, that. We could still, yeah, like I said, we'll talk about it here in a moment. But I want to kind of go back to Victoria's comment on um, on the hours. When I was flight instructing, I, you know, the the regulations say one thing, and then the flight school says another thing for how many hours you can solo a student at. And when I was a CFI, I could never get a student. I, you know, I could never get a student to solo at the bare minimum. Uh, it just it, I don't know why, just never, nobody was quite comfortable. I, they weren't quite confident. And, and so there's definitely no reason to frown upon how, you know, however long it takes, because there's a lot of factors that go into it and sort of transitioning from what we were talking about, the length of time that it does take you, we'll start, you know, let's talk about the frequency of flying since we've, we've brought that, uh, you know, that issue up a couple of times, but as an, from an instructor standpoint, I can definitely correlate the difference between folks who are able to facilitate flight training, uh, you know, two or three times a week on a consistent basis versus other individuals who, for whatever reasons, whether it's financial or life or job, and they're not able to get out at the same frequency. And and it sounds like, uh, you know, both um, Larry and Rick could uh, tell a little bit more about that, especially Rick, since, you know, like you said, you flew a little bit more in the 172, uh, more frequently in the 172 than when you were in the Cirrus. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what, you, you know, how you, how you feel that I mean, frequency, it, you know, definitely affected your learning or if yeah. it even did. No, it did. It just, it just took, it just took longer because of the first few, you say you're doing pattern the first few times around after time off, you're finding your, finding your legs again and you're finding the sweet mm-hmm. spot of everything. And, um, and then, you know, and then maybe by the end you're back. And then if you can fly the next week, you'll make progress. But if it's, if it's a month later, you know, you're kind of doing it over again. And I, um, you know, I think I hit all the things I've read. Other people hit the parts where you get frustrated, the, you know, the landings aren't there or they're there for a while and then, and then they disappear and you're not sure, you know, what, what's happened. It's like golf kind of, you know, where's my swing. And, um, but I think that's what happens is you step, you sort of step backwards a little, the muscle memory goes away. I have another, well, I'll, I'll save this, but I have another thing that I think affected me 
early on that, that sort of um, slowed me down a little. But yeah, I think that's that's why it, it just it takes longer. And when mm-hmm. and when I could do put a few flights together in a row, you know, more progress for sure. I think you told us about this, and if I'm getting yeah, what you're hinting at, was it the colorblindness? No, well, there's that, and that didn't. Yeah, that wasn't effective. No, I'll just jump in. It was funny. I was a big uh, flight simulator guy, and okay. and it was throwing me off. You know, the, the fly. The, I was. I thought I was. I basically stopped running the flight simulator while also in training because it was. It's a feel thing that, that you know, there's a lot of the instrument stuff. There's a lot of times where flight simulators can simulate what you're trying to learn, but they don't do a very good job of simulating what it feels like. And mm-hmm. you know, they get so you can get sight picture out of them, but that. The, the feeling of settling, of, of rounding out, of flaring, all the stuff that, you know, your body feels when it's doing that. Mm-hmm. I was um, I was trying to do it by visuals a lot, I think, and it was throwing me. So I, I stopped and, and things got a lot better. And the other thing that happened is um, I'll just uh, – I flew with um, um, Paul Santo Pietro, the guy who we who I interviewed in, what, 32A. Mm-hmm. And um, – we went up in his uh, Satabria, and I was being very careful with the Cirrus, you know, gorgeous plane, and I was just, you know, and he and he, we went up in his Satabria, and he was having me, you know, kick that rudder. He was just having me muscle it, you know, <laughs> just find the edges, you know, just kind of fly it, and 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 then I went back, and I was much better in the Cirrus because mm-hmm. I was flying it, and I wasn't like dancing. So that's another factor that I remember thinking, oh yeah, and it just opened me up a little bit. So. That's, but it was about the flight simulator thing that threw me off. I, mm-hmm. That was not a helpful combination while trying to learn to teach my body how to feel what was supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. Procedurally, it's good. You can practice, sure. you know, different things. But yeah, you do you do lose that spatial. Well, and the, you know, so I was at Norwood and the site picture where the lakes are and where you know where, depending on the approach for each runway, I, I learned a lot about what I was going to see, and that was all great. But yeah, the actual landings, no mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Couldn't get it, eh? <laughs> well, it, it got in the way, I think, for me. Yeah. Um, Larry, you, I mean, you've, we've talked about this in your glider interview and you've talked about it again today, but there was some period of uh, 15 some odd years between certain aspects of your flying. Uh, you know, so you are definitely in a good position to kind of touch upon your different experiences of when there were great, you know, large gaps between not just your flying and flight training versus when, you know, you were able to work on some stuff concisely. So share that with us. Sure. Um, totally agree with everything everyone said about, about frequency and, uh, boy, the, the, the quicker you can, um, the, the quicker you can get that next lesson coming, you know, sometime within a week, whatever would be great. Um, the faster you build your knowledge, the faster you build your confidence, and the less expensive it's going to be to get the thing done. Um, not that that really matters much. I mean, people, every once in a while, they'll say, well, how much is it going to cost to get my private pilot's license? And my standard answer is about $250 a week for the rest of your life. Um, so, it, uh, you know, in, in <laughs> That's a good one, one sense, yeah, it kind of doesn't matter, you know, right. how quickly you get done or whatever, but... Um, you know, on the other hand, it's nice to get some utility out of the thing and be able to take friends or go somewhere or do something fun, you know. So, um, anyhow, we, uh, uh, I, I encourage people to um, get get a rhythm going and try to mm-hmm. stick with it, you know. Mm-hmm. And even for some people, it's the winter time that comes. You know, airplanes fly great in the winter if it's not just, you know, bitter cold out. Um, but... Uh, uh, it's it's just good to get going. Something that 
that uh, I think I shared with you, Len, I don't, I don't know if I've said anything to, to the others, is uh, my wife uh, is now taking flying lessons mm-hmm. also, mm-hmm. working on her, private, or on her um, sport pilot license. And she's doing it in a Piper Cub. And so she's learning how to use a rudder. Um, but I keep encourage her, encouraging her, you know, two flights a week, get scheduled, you know, because weather happens and schedules happen and, you know, airplanes are busy or whatever. And so you're not going to actually fly those two flights a week. But if you can get that out on the calendar, you know, with the flight school, um, you know, some days it's just too windy to fly for, mm-hmm. for a, someone at, you know, whatever level, right, uh, of progression that you're at. But um, trying to get her to do that, to get, uh, to be able to get through it. Uh, she hasn't soloed yet, but she's looking forward to her first solo, which hopefully will be here in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Wow. So she's, she's coming along quite fast then. Yeah, she is. And, um, it's kind of fun to go out and watch her every once in a while. I, I try to, you know, kind of stay out of it when it's the lesson going on and, you know, <laughs> yeah, stay home, yeah. whatever, and let her come home and tell me about it. But, mm-hmm. uh, it's fun to see, you know, I mean, her eyes are just bright and excited and, um, she's smiling while she's telling me about it. So, mm-hmm. uh, very fun thing to watch, but but yeah, if if you let it get rusty, even just a couple of weeks, sometimes is enough to set you back to where you were before. Mm-hmm. This brings, uh, yeah, I'm hearing everybody talking about the frequency of flying, and maybe you know, maybe we could offer a, a suggestion to folks. If anybody ever was to ask us uh, individually, you know, what could I do for flight training? You know, if there's any tips or pointers. We know we know in today's day and age, there's a lot of uh, there, there's a lot of money involved in getting a, a pilot certificate. Maybe you know, maybe a bit of advice would be to you know, if you are really really want to do something like this, maybe wait six months until you have the money saved up, uh, where it's not you know something financially. Uh, it's not going to be a financial issue that could hinder you from being able to do those two or three flights a week, and and that could be. That could be something helpful, so that you've got the money saved, and then you just go ahead and you you know you hit it, you hit it hard. Because I know obviously I went to um, you know I went to college, uh, a collegiate flight program, and we were flying. We had our flight block was three days a week. When I was flight instructing, the flight block of my students was three days a week, and it, you know you can uh, you can appreciate that environment's a little bit differently because it it revolves around college and education and you know there's there's other money and loans involved in in uh, the college side of it that we can apply towards flying, but you can see that takeaway in having that money readily available to be able to take that flight frequency to two to three times a week. Uh, you know you, how effective that is. Uh, Victoria, what about yourself? I mean, have you had any noticed any struggles with uh, delays and frequency of flying when you weren't flying a lot versus when you were able, especially with your commercial? I mean, you bang that out real fast. But any, you know, in the previous certificates, any any notice notice anything like that? Yes, indeed. Um, my private pilot took me about two years. Um, when I started, I thought just one lesson every other week would do it. I had no idea that you needed to do more than that. And that's all I could afford at a time. So I was getting absolutely nowhere. Mm-hmm. Finally, I made it one a week. And then I realized, okay, I got to get my button gear and do a little bit more. So that's another reason for soloing so late. Um, luckily, I d- discovered, uh, well, not luckily. I hate these things. Sally Mae loans. They no longer really give them out <laughs> towards aviation anymore. <laughs> they're, they're a blessing you know, at the time, but they're also a curse because I'm still paying them off. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I took out a loan and then I was able to do it all. I got, so since it took me two years to finally finish my private, 
I got my instrument in under five months. I did that right away when I was done. Mm -hmm. Good. And then um, I had a scholarship to finish my commercial many years later. And um, I had most of the prep work done, the written done. You know, I had a basic little bit of a grasp on all the maneuvers. And I went out and flew at the airport eight hours a day for five days and no, six days. And on the seventh day, I became a commercial pilot. So, um, you know, it's it's all about the time that you put into it. Mm. I lived and breathed aviation for those seven days and I had the money to do it. So, yeah. You've been I, I would both. highly recommend people save up. I, I think that's, you know, the best bang for your buck. Yeah. So because you've been at both ends of the extreme there where you were able to do it all at once versus the first, you know, the first time it took you two years. Tell us, though, for instance, you know, when you were flying, when you first started, uh, and obviously you mentioned that it was there was uh, some finances involved in, in only being able to go once every other week. What were your first few lessons like? What were the struggles? I mean, were you just essentially, did you feel like you were repeating so much? Were you repeating so much? I mean, just kind of tell us about that. You know, how those first few lessons go? No, um, I didn't feel like I was re- repeating anything at all. It was all new. It was all fun. I was excited to be flying. But, um, you know, I didn't have an instructor that was very organized either. So I didn't have anything to compare to where I should be. Um, I didn't have a syllabus anything like that. So even though we were doing the same thing every day, I was having a blast. I was learning a bit. I think I could have gotten farther, even though I was Mm -hmm. just going, you know, every other week. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I changed flight instructors and things got a little bit better. Michigan weather came in and then, you know, other stuff happened. So. And that, you know, the changing of flight instructors. And I think that we've all probably experienced that and kind of playing back. Yes, you've had seven. So playing back, you know, what would we do different? The diff, what would we do, do different aspect of flight training? Um, does anybody feel like, and I'll start with Victoria, do you actually feel like having seven different flight instructors? Well, now, is that over the course of your private to commercial or is that just for one certificate? Um, that was private and instrument. Okay. So what are your thoughts on having that many instructors? Do you feel it was a too many in a short period of time or was it good diversity between instructor and instructor to see what, you know, the way the different technique that they taught and the different, I mean, for some people there's, there's a contrast. Having multiple instructors is, is good for them because they get to learn from, you know, multiple people who have multiple perspectives. Some folks, you know, that doesn't work. What was your experience with that? Um, actually, I think it was good switching around. Um, you find out what works and what doesn't work with you. And you also get to learn new techniques that you right. know, other instructors might have not known. Um, before, when I said, you know, it took me forever to solo, switching instructors was, was a great idea. It turns out I needed to do that, actually, to get farther. So, you know, it's okay to interview your instructor. It's okay to say, hey, this might not work. Let me try to fly with someone else just mm-hmm. for once and see if that might work better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've, I've had quite a few and they've all been great and they're all great people, but some I just worked with better because we all learn differently and we all teach differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Larry, what about your experience with uh, different instructors? You know, I've probably had a similar number of different instructors uh, on, you know, both glider and private and um, instrument uh, and then tailwheel and different geographies and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I think I, I know I've learned a lot from 
having different instructors. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, one person will just have a technique that works for you or that you kind of get, or, you know, they'll have a way of explaining something that all of a sudden clicks that maybe your other instructor, you know, just had a hard time getting one point across to you or something like that. Um, however, I think uh, Victoria hit the nail on the head when, you know, when, when it's kind of you planning it and you saying, hey, I want to go out and fly with another instructor, mm -hmm. you know, to work through through this one issue or this one topic or whatever versus if you're kind of getting jacked around by a flight school and getting a different instructor, you know, every few weeks who don't, where you don't have any continuity in your training. Um, where I've found it works best is if all of the instructors are currently at the same flight school um, and can provide that continuity back to each other, you know, talking about you as a student, where you're at, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, and then turning you over to another instructor to go try something um, where it's planned and it's sort of part of the program versus um, if the reason that you have a new instructor is because you came out and found out that your old instructor isn't there anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, if that happens too many times where the person doesn't have a working knowledge of what your strengths are, where you're at, you know, in, in your syllabus, really, um, then you do end up, you know, I think having to redo some things. Right. Yeah. And having that second opinion can also be helpful. Uh, you know, if you're, if I, you know, when I had a student struggling on something, I would have another instructor go and say, Hey, why don't you take a, take a flight with them and see what you see. And, and, and it, the big thing is there's a, like Victoria said, there's a lot of different techniques amongst pilots. Some things work for me, some things don't. You know, the biggest one that never, ever really worked for me is, you know, the whole round out and flare, stare as far as you can down the runway. That would always, it just blew my mind spatially. <laughs> I could not stare down the end of the runway when I was trying to, you know, ease the nose of the aircraft two feet in front of me on a piece of pavement. So, you know, I kind of just adapted my own thing there. But, you know, that was one technique that, you know, you, you don't get all of that unless you fly with other people. But Rick, how about yourself with your your experience with different flight instructors? Yeah, I had um, principally I had two in the in the my private, uh, which is not much, um, but interspersed there were some other people, and, and each one was memorable in, in um, you know as a as an impressionable sort of student uh, trying to soak it all in, um, and there are different things that 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 each of them said that that I still remember. Um, as little reminders of, of whatever. Um, one of them early on just, um, I was, you know, and, and let me back up too and say that I agree with Victoria. I did not have a syllabus either. And I think I would have benefited from one knowing what's coming, what's the progress, what are the steps. And in, in a way, what, 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 what I was doing a little more was they were just, they knew that they were checking off things and getting a sense of my abilities, but I wasn't sure what was next, you know, mm -hmm. and what was around the corner. So <clears throat> that said, I wasn't tracking some of the, um, and they differed a little on things with the Cirrus, like when, you know, when flaps would go in, not, not, not airspeed, but at what point. Um, and, and I think I got confused. And at one point I think I put, um, maybe I threw in the, there were only, I think there's two positions of flaps in the Cirrus and, and, um, yeah. And, and mm -hmm. I got them both in there and too early. And I was flying with a, a guy who was, he's just, he, I liked him. He was, he was fun. And he went, he said, what, you know, what are you doing? I said, well, I think so-and-so puts, you know, the other guy I was training with throws them in early. And he said, okay. And he just, you know, he pu pulled me to idle. He said, okay, your engine's out. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, like, and, and I'll never forget it because of, because of the way he did that. And I had to quickly, you better start turning. <laughs> You know, and I don't know how many hours I had. I can't remember which flight it was. I couldn't track it if I had to, but uh, maybe I could because he signed it. But um, 
it was great. And so that's an example of, well, I learned a couple of things about the importance of, of the precision of some of those mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, each one uh, had something to offer. And I, and I think I was in all, in all the cases I was able to learn from all of them. And the two principal ones I had, um, I liked them both. Um, and they, you know, and they got me there and I had fun flying with them. So mm-hmm. I got lucky in that way. Cause I did not interview them. I didn't really, you know, pick them out and say this, you know, and, and I guess I, I would have probably switched if, and that is good advice too. If, if it's not working, if you're not learning from that person, if you're not comfortable, you should switch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I never interviewed mine either. Had Larry or uh, Victoria, did you ever interview any flight instructor? I never mm-hmm. even occurred to me. No. Um, actually, well, not until later in my experience when it was time to do my commercial, I said, you know, are you going to be here long-term? Are you going to be available when I need you? Things like that, that were important because, mm-hmm. um, a piece of advice I'll give is in my private and instrument, I ended up actually having a backup instructor because my new instructor that I sold with, I was doing great, but he became, he was a heart surgeon or something like that. And he got very important up in this top of this hospital change and ended up being gone a lot. So here I was stuck again without an instructor and I didn't want to switch when I was so close to being done. So what I did as I got myself, you know, like a backup or substitute instructor who I would use whenever instructor A, you know, was gone. So I switched back and forth between the two of them and it actually really ended up working. And when I went over to a um, a new flight school for my commercial, I did the same thing because my uh, flight instructor was in the the reserves. And so every time he had to go serve, you know, on a long weekend or a week, I would use another instructor Mm -hmm. who, you know, we got used to. So I formed a relationship with two different instructors and it, it worked out pretty well. Mm-hmm. How about you, Larry? Um, the uh, uh, the instructors that I had were all really good, for sure. Um, I I feel like I learned from each one of them. Um, mine were all sort of planned transitions, and so that that, that helped me a lot. I I uh, knew most of the instructors that I had um, in advance. And so while I was working on my private, I met the people that I ended up working on my instrument with, that kind of thing. Um, and so I didn't feel like I needed to interview them, per se. Um, and there weren't just that many choices in Salem Springs, Arkansas, you know. So, you know, we talked about some of the things that we would do different um, in our flight training. But, what you know, let's share each some of the things that we, you know, we think that we did right or things that we think went, uh, went well during flight training, starting with Rick. I had my mic muted because I was moving the cat. This is just one of those <laughs> nights. Um, uh, did well. Um, hmm, that's interesting. I think I was so critical of myself that I'm going to have to think about that one. Um, okay. Uh, no, I. Uh, boy. <laughs> I mean, I think I just the landings were always challenging for me, and um, and that always that's probably common, and and uh, it always felt like I was never quite in particular the you know the the right you know the right round out point i mean i was i was dropping in a lot or or whatever um but um i don't know i i i think i got i think i got you know certainly the cross countries were fun and i was those were solid and i think my radio communications always been very good um maybe because well, a variety of reasons but principally because i started out having to do it you know by the tower um so yeah, that stuff. And I just, and the, you know, pattern was, was fine, but sloppy for, you know, here and there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, then it tightened up a bit and then it was just little, little landings. But, um, 
but yeah, that's I guess that's what would come to mind is that is that is that I you know had had a blast on the cross countries, mm-hmm. and I got to do them you know kind of briskly because of, I was in a cirrus. Sure, sure. <laughs> you know, it's like, like boom. You know, in fact, I, I always look back on that and go, well, that that saved a little bit of time. Yeah, <laughs> not much. But, oh, yeah, a little, not much. <laughs> uh, Victoria, how about you? What do you think? Some of the things during your whole flight training process, solo process, the whole experience. Um, you know, what things do you feel went well? Um, yeah, I'm kind of like Rick at first, because looking back, it was such a bumpy road and I was so <laughs> frustrated with the amount of money spent and then the amount of time it took because I had wanted to do this for a career, you know, and, and now I'm glad because I can educate people and help people and let them not go through the same frustration I did. But when I look back, what I did do right is I had the drive and I did not get a give up. And, you know, I'm just ambitious that way that I wasn't going to give up until I was done. But, um, what really helped was when I went online and found forums and, you know, read, uh, aviation magazines and just really kept myself involved and then sought out that support and advice that I didn't have from Mm -hmm. anyone around me. Yeah. Uh, Larry, what are some things that you felt went well for you during your process? Um, you know, I think there are probably several things like what some of you have mentioned. Um, there's one that I'll toss out that maybe is in a little different vein, but it really did help. Uh, after I got my private license, uh, a friend of mine and I, uh, who was also a pilot, uh, down in Arkansas, went together and bought a 172, uh, 1959 straight tail. Um, and it essentially reduced our, our flying expense to very little more than just gas. Mm-hmm. And so it allowed me to fly a lot more hours, you know, to afford to fly a lot more hours than I, I probably would have uh, ever been able to do otherwise. And it had, it was, it was uh, instrument capable in the barest of sense, you know, so you could go out and, you know, shoot some approaches in it. It had, you know, one decent ILS receiver. Uh, it had an old DME with a needle that goes back and forth with different ranges you had to, you know, kind of pick. Um, but it let me kind of get through the beginning of my instrument training uh, while I was still just doing kind of basic hood work and just shooting a few approaches. Um, towards the end of that, I did end up, um, you know, renting a 172 that had a lot better equipment in it just to kind of, you know, finish up in a decent airplane. Um, but if you can if you can swing it, whether it's working on you know sport pilot or private or instrument or whatever, um, you know buying an airplane or being in a club like I am now, uh, you know can really make the the flying a lot more affordable than just you know being out there renting you know and paying for every every one of those Hobbs mm-hmm. hours that go that clicks off. Mm-hmm. Well, I had uh, you know for what I think was one of my saving graces was my instructor was very, very, very excited about flying, wanted to fly all the time. Whenever there was, uh, actually kind of reminds us of a friend of ours, uh, Rick, a, you know, our friend Sam that listens to the show. Had yeah. a, I had an instructor that whenever there was an opportunity, if it was an aircraft reposition flight or an aircraft <laughs> had to be picked up here, or for some strange reason, uh, I don't know, that let's go take this airplane out because uh, it's got a few hours, uh, you know. We just, we always... We were able to, I don't want to say sneak into different airplanes, but, you know, kind of get ourselves into different airplanes. And, you know, I went from the, I was able to, this interesting experience, I was able to fly the 152, the 172, the 172RG, a Mooney, a Cap 10, which is an aerobatic tailwheel. 
And I'm trying to think of what else. The arrow, the archer. And, you know, I would have never flown all those things if it was his relationship with other pilots that he was flying with. And, and we were just always found our way into some strange aircraft for some strange mission or something that needed to be done. And that was something that was really good for me was just having the diversity of aircraft and having an instructor that was so passionate and so, um, you know, just so excited. He was, he was like, he was, he would always call me when there was one of these little fun trips or fun things that had to go on that was flying related. And, uh, we had a lot of fun and did a lot of different things in a lot of different aircraft. So that was really cool to me. Um, but you know, guys, we have, uh, kind of pushing on the top of the hour mark. So we should probably, before we do go, but does anybody have anything to kind of finish up? I think we've, we've, we've hit a few good points here today that, uh, the consistency of a flight instructor is good, possibly saving money, um, until you have enough money, to start your flight training so that you can do it with a certain amount of consistency is an, is another good tip. Um, interviewing flight instructors is another a third good tip. Anybody have anything to add before we do close out and move on to picks of the week? I th- I just think the syllabus point is an interesting one that that I wished I had a little more structure because there's some thing, there's some things I missed um, taking seriously. Um, yeah, I told the story before, but I <laughs> I don't think I paid close attention to airspeeds. You know at every point. I didn't quite get how slow I had to get the plane at what time. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and, and I, I worked through it, but it took long, it, like the light bulb went off way late <laughs> and that, sh- <laughs> that should have been handled early. I should have, that, there are numbers. And I mean, I knew, I knew not to break the plane. I knew what to do for that. But in terms of um, having it be established and things like that, for some reason that slipped by. And I think if I had, you know, a structure, it would things like that would have uh, happened quicker. So, mm-hmm. related to that, just spending a little bit more time for me, uh, I could have spent a little bit more time with the PTS. You know, just understanding yeah. what was to be expected of me and what those that's those true. performance that's, standards yeah, were. That's, that's a good point. Yeah, because yep. especially when you go into other ratings and certificates, there's some tighter tolerances and smaller margins. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a good point, uh, Victoria. She um, fell asleep. You got me. I was sneezing. Sorry, <laughs> I, I didn't. I had, I'm still recovering from my illness on the last show. Our picks of the week. Cool. Well, why don't we go ahead then and make the transition over to the picks of the week? This is our portion of the show where we share a interesting aviation product or service. Uh, some of our pro- some of our picks of the week this evening are kind of in tune with the primary flight training and first solo, and the you know the training environment. So let's start. Actually, I guess Victoria, yours would be a good place to start. Yeah, sure. Um, I found this on Sporties. I thought it'd be kind of fun. I was wondering if there was anything to um, commemorate you know, your first solo. And so I found on sporties.com is the solo recognition trophy. It's actually quite pretty. It's got a wooden base. You can get it engraved. It says first solo. Um, and there's a quote on there. It says, where is a sense of accomplishment felt greater than after your first solo flight? The thrill and excitement is indescribable to those who have not taken the controls into their own hands. Welcome to the club. So I thought that was kind of a cute thing. So if you know someone who's soloing, that might be a good gift for them. Very nice. Very nice. Good idea. Um, Larry, you sort of, t- you, you briefly touched on your pick of the week earlier t- um, about the, the Cubs, the Cubs cool school. Tell us. Yeah. More about yeah. So um, Steve Krogh, uh runs a flight school that focuses on Piper Cubs uh, in Hartford, Wisconsin. And that's where I 
you know, finally got my uh, tailwheel endorsement where my wife is working on uh, getting her license at. Um, and it's just one of the few places in the country where you can go out and get a tailwheel endorsement and then turn around and actually rent the airplane solo. Right. Um, that's I, I didn't realize how special that was just because they were so close to me, you know, but uh, great flight school. Um, you know, he kind of has the banner of old school is still cool and uh, definitely worth checking out if you're in the area, whether you want to get, you know, a tailwheel endorsement or just pick up a little bit of cub time. Uh, really fun, fun place and, and good folks. Uh, also, just a real, real quick one. Um, I noticed that a uh, former flight instructor of mine uh, threw a page out on Facebook called My First Solo, uh, and it's starting to collect some pretty good uh, little stories and pictures and things of people's first solos. So Mm -hmm. on the theme for tonight, I'll toss that one out there too. Cool. Uh, Rick, tell us about your pick of the week. Yeah, you know, I was thinking back to those days of of learning. I I was doing a couple things to try to to try to get the information <laughs> into my head. I remember taking a drive out to um, <clears throat> out, uh, out west uh, Massachusetts to visit to, for a UCAP um, podcast meetup back then. And I had, rec- I, I, and I was within a few days of the, of the oral and I, I had done audio recordings of a, of a number of the regs and, and, so that I could hear them over and over and over. And on the drive, I played them over and over in my head. And, so that was the kind of stuff I was having to do back then, and this was not that long ago. Well, now there's all sorts of data that's much more available, and my pick is just the uh, thing called the Pilot Far Aim, and um, it's it's on iOS. I bet you it's on everything uh, because all it is is that book updated um, and indexed, so you can search things. So it's just a you know for people training, if they haven't found that yet, they should go get it because it's a it's a great way to to study up, uh, you know, say, I'm going to read a section of that and have it be right there in your hand if you're killing time or whatever in your mm-hmm. life. So it's a, it's a cool thing. And the digital version is a far better way for trying to search for something than flipping through a 700 page you yeah. know, phone, phone book to find, where was that section again? I can't find that. Yeah. And you can mark stuff. I mean, it works the same way too, but you're right. Yeah. It's, so yeah. And it's handy and, and all that good stuff. So definitely check it out. Well, because you know, pretty much the number one thing most people have on their person about twenty-three hours out of the day is their mobile device. So uh, that's a good exactly. way to good way to pull it out in dead time and study up on something. Yeah. So cool. Uh, my pick of the week is uh, the UND Aerospace Podcast, and um, we're going to include a link here in the show notes regarding uh, how to get access to this. But they have multiple things going on there. They uh they all they have um, when you get to the web page there's basically four sections you can choose from there is uh, software video mobile applications and links some of the software uh, are aerodynamic trainers they have checklist trainers they have an E6B flight computer uh, as far as the videos go the the actual podcast is called the UND Aerospace Aerocast and they have uh, it's basically just a bunch of flight training techniques and lessons in video format that's put on by the uh, University of North Dakota Aerospace Program. And let's see, what else do we have here? Their mobile applications section is a, is a link out to different mobile applications, uh, stuff for airport databases, air traffic control, checklists, flight planning, flight simulation. Well, one we just talked about, the FAR AIM. Uh, another good one for your iPhone and iPod, like we just talked about, that mobile device that you probably have in your pocket more places than you care to admit, even if you're in the bathroom. There's pilot prep, test preparation. You know, you can whip that out, go through a few questions wherever you are on the bus, uh, anywhere. 
the last section is some links out to uh, stuff like Tim's Air Navigator Simulator and a foil simulator, an engine simulator. Another one has, this is pretty cool, a carburetor demo. Uh, so just a lot of these resources are free and really good for not just primary students learning to fly, but also for folks who are coming up on flight reviews, folks who are working on advanced certificates. And, you know, if you're just looking for some information, maybe a secondary way to learn something, uh, you know, it's just, it's amazing content. And so, like I said, it's the UND Aerospace Podcast. You can Google it, but we'll include the link here in the show notes so that you can get right to it. And there's just a ton of useful information there. So, um, excellent. Well, I really appreciate everybody. Uh, can I step in? Uh, no. Well, I just want to <laughs> let you know they also have a lot of YouTube videos out. What's YouTube? Um, you know, YouTube. <laughs> Is that where I waste all of my time? Yeah, we got tons of videos out there. It was very helpful for my commercials. Which you want which to learn one? a maneuver? They have like animations of them. And are you talking the UND or just in general? UND. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. So okay. So they're putting some videos out on there too. Great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, they must. Uh... Okay. Yeah. There's a link to that too. I see the YouTube channel on on this page too. So excellent. Didn't want you to miss that. Oh, you're so kind. Thank you for stepping all over me to to. No, just kidding. Appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, I can't get a word in edgewise today. Come on, boys. <laughs> oh, okay. Larry, this is the part of the show where I don't talk. <laughs> this is <laughs> the part where we I'll argue. follow your cue. There's nothing, that, nothing to be gained from that. <laughs> nothing. Just let them bicker. <laughs> la, la, It'll stop la, eventually. La, la, la. <laughs> I'm done awesome. now. You speak. I may speak. Excellent. The after landing checklist. Victoria, since you did want to butt in and speak, tell folks how they can uh, get in touch with you. All my contact info is available on my blog at toriaflies.blogspot.com. All right, Mr. Overstreet, how can our listeners who are just being introduced to you, how can they get in touch with you? Facebook, Twitter, blog, anything? Probably the best place is on Twitter. I am at Larry Overstreet. All right, uh, Carl. Uh, Carl, where's Carl? Carl! Oh, I don't know Carl. if I can do an impression of Carl. <laughs> uh, uh, ExpertAviator.com. Yeah, yeah what, go ahead. Sounded like Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> He's oh, Beavis. Man. I'm definitely Butthead. There you but, go. Well, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Rick, tell us uh, how can folks get in touch with you? Sure. <laughs> Rfelty on Twitter, rdfelty on YouTube, and rotationspeed.com. Cool. And again, with the reminder with the transition from the Pilot Report to the Stuck Mike Avcast, the only way you can get a hold of me right now is on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Len Costa. That's C-O-S-T-A. We have upgraded the podcast uh, contact methods. We uh, not only are you familiar with stuckmikeavcast at gmail.com, but you can send us snail mail. Um, we do like uh, cookies and other sugary treats in the mail as well. The address is stuckmikeavcast.com, P.O. Box 8064, Nashua, New Hampshire, 03060. Or if you'd rather leave us a voicemail, we can play uh, your questions or comments on the air during a show. The telephone is 617-981-4134. So from myself, Len Costa, Rick Felty, Victoria Neuville-Zyko, and our special guest co-host, Larry Overstreet, thank you all for tuning in to episode number 34 of the Stuck Mike Avcast, and we all wish you guys clear skies and calm winds. Take care, everybody. 
You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Abcast is an aviation podcast brought to you by thepilotreport.com, a Len Costa production.